Good. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be starting today as we are continuing our walk through the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be looking, I'll just warn you, we are going to jump around a little bit. We're going to hit a couple of different areas, but that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Genesis 3. And today we're looking specifically at this sixth petition. And we've hit on it already during our time of confession. And what we need to see is this petition as, as part of uh, or within the, the overall context of this prayer pattern that Jesus has been giving to his disciples. And beyond that, okay, beyond that, beyond understanding this, the place of this petition within the, the specific prayer, we need to understand this, the position of this prayer within the overall teaching of what Jesus is doing here. Because he's been addressing his disciples and, and evidently a great crowd. And, and what we commonly called the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so beginning in Matthew chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, but beginning in Matthew 5 and continuing all the way through Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's meeting with them and engaging with them in what is really a deeply personal, uh, a deeply personal and revealing period of time. We've seen the first three petitions of the prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those three petitions are, are theocentric prayers. They are they're God-centered. They are your name, uh, your kingdom, and your will. And they, they have a specific regard for God and, and ultimately for His glory. And then the remaining three petitions, including the one that we're looking at today, have a different subject. Instead of your, we read, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then finally, we read our petition today. This is Matthew 6, 13, which says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should notice that there is a comprehensive nature to these three personal petitions. There's a concern for the, for the physical body. We, we need, on a base level, we need bread to survive. There is a concern for the soul, okay, for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And today we see a concern for our spirit, for our spirit in this world as we actively seek to navigate the, the treacherous paths of this life. And so what I want to do is just right out of the gate is simply ask you, is simply ask you to think about the one place in this world, just the one place in this world where there is no temptation to sin. As we are sitting here right now, is there anywhere in this world, any corner of this planet, any, any nook in all of the earth, where you can be free from all temptation to sin? And with that question in mind, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are looking to you, hopeful, uh, confident that you will speak to us, that you will open your word to us, that you will make it clear to us what you want us to hear today, that you will apply it to our lives. God, I pray that in all ways possible that you would move me out of the way. Don't let my stammering tongue be a hurdle for what you're trying to do today. Lord, we look to you to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what we know of the world today, the world that we live in today, is that it is, that it is not as it was originally made. And so when our first parents ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just them that fell or even just their offspring, but all of creation was fractured in its relationship with God. Remember what Paul wrote to the church in Romans 8.20, where he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then later he'll go on to say that creation is groaning in anticipation of future glory. And this is a direct result of the failure in the garden. And so where we sit right now, where we sit right now with all of the comforts, uh, with all of the beauty, even the splendor of this place, where we sit right now is but a fractured shadow of the majesty of creation prior to the fall. And so what I will contend with you this morning as we look at this petition is that because of the fall, because of the fracture of sin in the world, there is No place in this world that is completely void of potential temptation. And because of that, because of that fracture into sin and the ever-present temptations around us, we are in desperate need for deliverance. But let's look back at Genesis 3 for a minute and see, let's see how we got here. Okay, so looking back at Genesis 3-1, we see the serpent uh, being described as crafty. Okay, he's, he's cunning. He is clever, and we see that the serpent, this is the one that John, in his revelation, in Revelation 12, clearly identifies as Satan. We see him come along, and and he starts a conversation. And so we read that he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? Now at this point, the woman responds. At this point, the woman responds. And whatever else we might make out of her response to the serpent. What is clear is that at this point, she has no desire to eat or no intention to eat of the fruit of that tree. No desire. If anything, if anything, she's, she's a little strong, okay? But the crafty servant doesn't give up. 
He doesn't give up. He tells her in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so it's, it's simple. This is simple. He, he's telling her, God's been holding out on you. God's been holding out on you. He's been keeping something really good from you. He doesn't want any equals. And if you eat this fruit, you will be like him. Now look at verse 6. Let's see, what, let's see what temptation does. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So, so the woman takes a second look and now she believes that the fruit will bring fulfillment. You see, it started at that base level. At a foundational level. It was good for food. And she also believes that the fruit will bring enlightenment. That it was to be desired to make one wise. And she believes that it will bring splendor. It was a delight. It was a delight to the eyes. It was nice to look at. It was beautiful. And so she believed the lies. That's what she did. She believed the lies. We need to recognize that that the behavior problem at its core, was really a belief problem. She believed that the fruit would deliver fulfillment, that it would deliver enlightenment, and that it would deliver splendor. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now look at what happens next. Look back at Genesis 3 and look at verse 8 with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, this is the man, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay, so so we see what happens. Instead of fulfillment, instead of enlightenment, instead of splendor, the man and the wife find themselves hiding in the bushes with loincloths made out of fig leaves, doing the best that they can to hide the shame of their nakedness as their Creator actively seeks communion with them. Our Heavenly Father is seeking them, and they are hiding. This is just, this is just a tragedy. And then we, see, then we see what happens. They start making excuses, and they start trying to pass the blame. Versus the man who actually, you got to love this guy. He actually seems to be blaming God in the story, right? It's, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit. It's just the typical, I'm not, I'm not saying I didn't eat the fruit. I'm just saying it's not my fault. I'm telling you, we have more in common with Adam than we would ever care to admit. And how about the woman? She's not ready to own it either, right? The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
This is just a tragic scene playing out in front of us. No ownership, no repentance. And look at what happens now. Look at Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. We're going to stop there. I know that's not the end of 15. We'll come back. We're stopping there for now because I think that's all we need to make this point. They are denying, right? They are passing off the guilt, but God knows the heart. And when the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, listen to me, enmity does not equal indifference. Enmity does not equal indifference. Now, we make that mistake a lot. But enmity is not simply not caring. In fact, enmity is the opposite of not caring. It is, enmity is the state of being, of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. It is deep rooted hatred. This is, this is Israel and the Philistines. That's enmity. This is the Jews and the Samaritans. That's enmity. Enmity is not indifferent. Enmity is aggressive. We have seen enmity at work in the world in just the last couple of days, haven't we? And what God just told his image bearers, what he just told you is that is that they have an enemy. And as they are sent out of the Garden of Eden, they're going out into the wild, not as neutral inhabitants of the world, not as those who are without risk or danger, but as those who have an adversary. That's what Satan means. Adversary. And whether you realize it or not, the same is true for you. The same is true for us. Because, and you know this to be true, we find ourselves presently in a broken and fallen world where everything that we touch, where everything that we taste or smell or hear, everything around us echoes on some level of brokenness. Now, now God, by His grace, by what we call His common grace, has kept this thing from, from falling totally away. He is gracious to give us glimpses of Eden, okay, traces of that beauty. But the harmony of the garden has been wrecked by sin. It's like an off-pitch trumpet and like a middle school brass quartet. You've been to that concert. That's what sin does to the symphony of God's creation. And as we long for the perfection of God's holiness... We are always susceptible to temptation. But, and this is the good news, the enemy has shown his hand, and we'd be wise to learn from it. Much like the woman in the garden, Satan comes at us in the same way. And we see his tactic on full display when Jesus himself is tempted by the evil one. Look at that with me. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 11. That's where we're going to go. Matthew 4. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read this. And I just want you to see if you can pick up on some of the, some of the patterns here. 
This is the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When I was a child, uh, my family always had a subscription to National Geographic. I don't know if people still do that, but we had that. We didn't have cable, but we had National Geographic. And I remember seeing pictures of places like Mount Everest or like the, the Amazon rainforest or Egypt. It really didn't matter, wherever it was. And I remember thinking of how amazing these places must be. I thought of how great it would be to see these places in person, to stand there in the vast expanse of what of what was to me at that moment just a glossy just a glossy photograph in a bit of an odd-shaped magazine. Because you see, in a photograph, in a photograph, even the wild can appear, can appear to be quite tame. But then I read a book. I read several books on, uh, on Mount Everest and the treacherous conditions that are Mount Everest, of how even at like the base camp elevation, it is difficult for the average person to breathe, to just gather your breath. And then I read of how, how the temperature fluctuations there within that climate go anywhere from the sun burning you because there's no atmosphere to protect you to the cold burning you because you're freezing. And all of a sudden, going to Everest lost a little bit of its luster for me. And then at some point, you know, we went down to the zoo and I saw like an actual anaconda for the first time. And it was kind of hot and muggy in that room anyway. And, and all of a sudden, I didn't want to find myself in a canoe paddling down some Amazonian tributary. When we see Jesus in the wilderness, we can't let this be just a picture. We can't get caught up in the miscellaneous details and miss the overarching reality. This is not a biblical National Geographic for us. This is not a glossy, pretty representation. This is a demonstration of life in the wild. And it shares a lot in common with what we saw in Genesis 3. The only real difference is the outcome. Look at how Satan tempted Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says in verse 2, in no uncertain terms, that he was hungry. And so what Satan's tempting him with, this is the same thing that he tempted the woman with, isn't it? 
He is tempting him with fulfillment. She saw it was good for food. He's tempting Jesus with food. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. He takes him to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle of the temple, and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He is, he is daring Jesus to prove it. He's daring him to prove it. The next three years of Jesus' life, remember this, the next three years of Jesus' life are about to be an underground movement of redemption through the fallen culture. He will experience grief. He will experience sorrow. He will experience pain. He will experience betrayal. He will experience threats. And ultimately, he's going to die a brutal death on a Roman cross. Satan is tempting him here with enlightenment, just not for him, but for everyone else. If the angels come and save you, everyone will see it. It will answer all the questions of who you are. It'll save you all of that other stuff. He's asking him, wouldn't that be a good thing? He's tempting him with enlightenment. Look at verse 8. The devil takes him to a high mountain. By the way, that's a classic pagan tradition in the Old Testament to, to go to the high mountain and worship. He takes him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He's tempting Jesus here with splendor. He's tempting him with splendor. And so we're, here we see the crafty serpent still using the same tricks still employing the same tactics, this time against the offspring of the woman. This is the enmity that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Still tempting with fulfillment, still tempting with enlightenment, and still tempting with splendor. And this probably begs the question, at least at some point, why is Satan allowed to tempt Christ? And then naturally, if we ask that question, we might ask, why is Satan allowed to tempt us? And what I would say is that the word allowed in that question is very, very important. Why is Satan allowed to do these things? It must be asked that way or else we run the risk of presenting sort of a, a dualistic picture of God and the adversary. And while that's very popular, it's not very biblical. And it is very, very dangerous. And so we want to guard against the notion that's floating around out there that God and Satan are squared off and that they're, they're sort of equals battling in some sort of, some sort of battle for cosmic supremacy. Because while that might make for a fun movie or some solid fairy tale material, maybe a Greek drama, it's definitely not biblical. That's what we call dualism. And it's destructive. To, to turn Satan into an equal opponent of God is to ascribe to him power that he does not have. It's to give him an eternal nature. But Satan is a created thing. He's powerful, okay? And he's not to be trifled with. But he's not eternal. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But he is not all-powerful. He is not all-powerful. We also can't land on the idea of a limited God. I want you to be careful here, too. Since God is the creator of all things, the one who, the one who created all things of nothing by the word of his power uh, in the span of six days and all very good, 
It can't be that he lacks the power and authority to stop Satan. What we have to say, and there is mystery in this, what we have to say is that God, for his own eternal purpose and ultimately for his glory, allows Satan to tempt. We see this with the story of Job. God tells Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan must be permitted to work. It's not an inherent right of his. But this is life in the wild. You and I are tempted every single day with fulfillment apart from our Creator. And listen, these aren't always bad things. Just because something is a temptation to us doesn't make it inherently bad. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with sports. We never, we never see a condemnation of games or sports in Scripture. What we do see is Paul saying to Timothy, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes by the rules. And we've used that. We've quoted that to our kids. See, God says you have to play by the rules. Here's what what we should notice about this. It seems that those first century believers were familiar with the temptation that many experience today to win at all costs. If we can just win this many games, if we can just get the championship ring, we see it play play out like that in all the theaters of our lives. If this would just happen, whatever this might be, then everything will be right We see it in how we're raising our kids, don't we? If my son would just score a goal, it would prove how great I, I mean he, (laughs) right? Listen, we're in those circles. We know exactly what's going on. Do Do not think for one second that I don't understand the full weight of the temptation to find fulfillment in how well my kids dance on a stage or hit a ball. We know that temptation well, and it doesn't have to be sports. Look, it could be anything. Most of the advertising that you see around you and aimed at you is based on the promise that whatever we are selling will fulfill, that it will enlighten, and that it will bring you splendor. Just once, just once, I'd like to see an orange juice advertisement. An advertisement for orange juice that just says, God did this, all we did was squeeze it into a bottle. Just once. Enjoy. You know, that's the Florida sun gets way too much credit for basically being held in place in our solar system by the almighty hand of God. But that's just me. You and I are constantly in a battle. That's why the Apostle Paul at the end of his life didn't say, I've traveled a lot, planted a lot of churches, and been a pretty good guy. He says, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In his his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper makes this statement. He says, he says, life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. The concern for the church today, I should, my concern for the church today, is that you are in a fight, and I'm not sure you realize it, 
And if you realized it, really, you would pray this petition that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. With a right understanding of the world and a right understanding of our own hearts, we know that the temptations to sin come both from within and from outside of us. It's James who says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We have that desire within us. And this petition, really in this petition, what we're praying against is opportunity. I've heard it said this way, often it is only the lack of opportunity that keeps us from falling. It's when desire and opportunity collide that we are sure to fall and find ourselves in the position that David describes in Psalm 22 when he says, he says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. It's when we realize our true position in the world, our total dependence on God's provision and protection, that we must recognize our desperate need for deliverance. And the truth that we find ourselves in need of a deliverer. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, there was the promise of enmity. There was the promise of animosity, of active opposition, of hostility between the offspring of the woman and that of the servant. But there was another promise in that verse as well. After that promise of future enmity, we read a future victory when God says that the offspring of the woman, he says this, he shall bruise your head and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What we see there is a covenant promise of deliverance. We have the promise of God in Genesis 3 to meet our greatest need. And we find the fulfillment of that promise. The fulfillment of that promise, we find it in Jesus Christ. The one who, who was tempted, but did not fall. The one who did and does deliver us from evil. Seeing us in our sin, knowing our hopelessness, God sent His only Son to come into the world to crush the head of the serpent to crush the head of the adversary and to set his people free. And by his life, his death, and his resurrection, we have confidence for the fight. Uh, our two-year-old, is, he's a great little kid. Like, I know every parent says that, or at least you're supposed to. But it's true. He's, he's a great one. We, we love him very much. We love the others too, but the illustration is about this one. And... Uh, a few months ago, uh, when we were on vacation, we went down to the beach. Uh, went down to the beach, and now, now we think he's a smart kid. We think he's a coordinated kid, but he's not a swimmer, okay? Not at a year and a half. He's not a swimmer. And so the beach is a, that's a treacherous environment for him. And given his somewhat reckless nature, that, that risk is amplified quite a bit. And so we, we let him run around on the sand, and we told him, you know, we explained to him, don't go down to the water. <laughs> Try
tried to warn him of the dangers, you know, pointed at the waves and went, no, you know, told him about sharks. We tried to give him all the basics for coastal survival. That was the goal. Tried to get him to chase the seagulls and stuff, but he wasn't having any of that because he likes the water. And, and it, this kid loves the water. And so inevitably, he ran down to the water. Now here's what I didn't do. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't sit on the sand and watch him run towards his demise and think, serves him right. I didn't do that. I didn't throw him out there and say, well, survival of the fittest. Let's just let natural selection have a choice. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I wasn't even tempted to do that. Because why? I love my son. Because I love my son. But the temptation toward the water was too much for him. It was. And so I followed. And you've probably seen this. Followed closely behind him. As he waddled down towards the sand, down towards the water, and ultimately out into the water, out into the tide. And I even let it knock him over. In the first sermon in this series, we looked at the phrase, Our Father in Heaven. We looked at the love that our good Father has for His children. And as our Father, as our Father, there are times when He will allow us to walk out into the tides, out into the danger, and into the temptations that our hearts lead us into. We are, as we heard sung this morning, prone to wander. When my son was knocked down by the waves, I didn't let him drown. Just to put you at ease. He's still with us. Not for a moment did I forsake him in that. I scooped him up, you know, held him in my arms, and I carried that child to the place of safety. That is this petition. God, if it be your will, lead us away from the place of testing Lead us away from the temptations of this world. Lead us to green pastures, right? Lead us to quiet waters. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. But when we fall, as we are prone to do, deliver us. You are in a fight. As a child of the living God, you are have an enemy. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. Jesus is, he's the serpent crusher. He is our deliverer. And so we say with confidence the same words that Job once cried, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. You know, the image there is not just of Jesus in a field. It's not. This is not sound of the music, him out there, just out there hanging out in a field. This is a picture of victory. 
The image is one of victory. It's one of our Redeemer standing triumphant in battle. We may have an adversary, and we certainly, certainly do. But we have a good father who loves his children. And we have a great king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let us not forget the privilege that we have to call you that. That would surely be a great mistake. And God, whatever we know about the tests and trials of our, our life, what we know is that you, you never leave us. You never forsake us. You are faithful when we are faithless. You are true. You are strong. You are capable. God, we look to you. Carry us through. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.